Welcome to the Cole Memo. I'm your host, Cole Preston. This is episode two in my series on the legal sex industry in Nevada, what I've been calling the legal sex industry in America. If you haven't checked out episode one, please do. It's only eight minutes long, and if you'd like to find it, there's a link in the episode description for today's episode, which will redirect you to episode one. Once again, it's only eight minutes, and it sets up why exactly I'm talking about this. You can also go directly to thecolememo.com slash sex to access episode one and all other episodes that have been released to date. If you've seen episode one, you know that in today's episode, episode two, we are featuring the perspective of Tori Lisa. Fun fact about Tori Lisa that she mentions in the show, right now I'm displaying an invitation that she received from the White House, from Michelle Obama and Dr. Jill Biden. They requested the pleasure of her company, and here is photographic evidence of her company. This is the individual I interviewed, Tori Lisa, and you can see Michelle Obama and Dr. Jill Biden So uh, this is uh, the individual we are interviewing today. Another thing that this individual mentions about today's show is that they are followed by a former president. And here is some photographic evidence of that. That's from their Twitter. Folks, you're listening to The Cole Memo. Every episode of The Cole Memo is released in audio, video, and transcript format. To find the transcript, audio, or video version of any episode, please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to now. Within that description, you can find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode and the platforms where you can find this episode in audio or video formats. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever platform you're listening from, simply note the episode number and visit thecolememo.com. From there, you can find the corresponding episode, and then you will be able to access the audio, video, and transcript version of that episode. You might also find any links that we reference during the episode so that you might be able to do your own research. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you're listening to this episode later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. Once again, that's thecolememo.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's a great way to support our show, but one of the best ways to support our show is absolutely free. Subscribe to or follow our show. Leave a positive review from wherever you're listening to us from. Favorite this episode, give it a thumbs up, leave a comment, or post a review. Your engagement and support is appreciated. Today is December 2nd, 2023. The interview showcased in today's episode was released on October 22nd, 2023. Um, So one of the things I want to make clear before I get into this episode is that, first of all, you can connect with today's participant by going to ToriLisa.com. Once again, Tori Lisa is in this episode, and you can connect with her by going to ToriLisa.com. That's T-O-R-R-E-Y-L-I-S-A.com. And I wanted to make it very clear that it's been made clear to me by both Tori and her former employer uh, that she didn't necessarily have permission to call me from the brothel, but we were both willing participants in this conversation, and so we will be releasing this conversation in its, in, in its entirety. Folks, enjoy this episode of the Cole Memo, featuring Tori Lisa, our first guest to call us from a brothel. 
Enjoy. Hey, Tori, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Cole? I'm doing great. And I've been looking forward to this conversation all day. So thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Not a problem. I'm happy to have this conversation and I've looked forward to it too. Yeah. So um, really quick, could you give folks just a brief introduction? Tell us your name um, and what you, what you, what's your profession? What do you currently do? Okay. My name is Tori Lisa and it's actually my real name. I don't use a stage name in the industry um, because I'm very proud of what I do. And what I do is a combination of things that all fall under the umbrella of being a sex worker. Um, I am an online sex worker. I create adult content. So I am a professional model. I'm also a porn star with a particular studio. And then I am also a burlesque performer, but my full-time gig is I am an in brothel, uh, full-time in service, full service brothel worker. So I'm a legal prostitute in the state of Nevada, just outside of Reno. Yeah. And, uh, for all of those reasons, you fit right in here at the Chillinois podcast. <laughs> <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Um, people might already know why I wanted to sit down with you, but if I could put it in a nutshell, I've always found it fascinating that you can simply cross an imaginary line and then all of a sudden the rules change. And uh, Nevada is a great example of that. Of course, everybody is keenly aware of the fact that we talk about cannabis legalization all the time, which is another one of those instances in the United States where if you cross a state line, all of a sudden the laws are different. So legal prostitution or legal sex work has been allowed in uh, Nevada for quite some time. And there are licensed brothels in the state. I think it's such a cool conversation and I want to get to that. But first, I just want to talk about how you found yourself where you are today. I've been reading your story and it is, it's fascinating. I mean, like I've seen, uh, <laughs> some of the different questions you've gotten about, about, about your arc and uh, mm -hmm. the way that you answered is, is just so perfectly. So I don't want to try to do that myself. I want to just get right into it. Um, can you give me a highlight reel of like your child, you know, kind of your childhood through adulthood. I just want to hear a little bit about like what your childhood was like. And then I, I like I say, I want to get the highlight reel so that we can, you know, talk about, uh, you know, your experience with your partner and everything else? Sure. Um, a lot of people have a lot of assumptions about sex workers that they're, you know, this is like the end of the line for them and a last desperate attempt to do thing, uh, you know, to do something to earn money. And for me, it was actually very purposeful. But my story is actually, I was the perpetual good girl. I was a preacher's daughter, and then my dad went into working with the government as a law enforcement officer. Um, so I had to be twice as good. <laughs> I couldn't get away with things. Um, he was very strict. Um, I had a lot of supervision, if you will. So I had both parents who were married more than 55 years. I was one of five kids. So I didn't come from a broken home. Um, I mean, it wasn't, you know, the perfect family, but we did have a solid family background. Um, I, I, I met my husband in college. 
Um, it's kind of a long story with that one, but I married a man in the military. So I had to, you know, follow etiquette. You know, he was both an officer and enlisted, which was kind of unusual. It was a pilot program. Um, so I had to switch between protocols, between being a, a enlisted wife and an officer's wife. And there's two totally different set of rules, you know, for, for that. Um, we were married for 10 years. We actually got divorced. He went off to combat. He was wounded in combat. So because we had three kids together, um, I came by his side because they didn't think he was going to make it. Well, he did make it and I ended up remarrying, bringing our family back together again and being a full-time caregiver to him for 14 years. In the course of that, I was um, pursuing my own college degrees. When I say multiple degrees, because I had changed my um, degree programs multiple times, being transient in the military, um, a lot of the credits didn't quite transfer. So I have a lot of college um, underneath, you know, it, underneath my belt. So I, ran my own businesses that were portable. Uh, so I ran my own media business. I ran um, a couple other businesses and they weren't the MLM businesses. They were actual, um, you know, licensed through the state and, and so on and provided more of a service industry type, um, type of, of industry. So then I, be, then I started writing. Um, and my final degree program was in creative writing and journalism. I was running a very popular blog because in my advocacy work after my now ex was wounded in combat, there were a lot of things that were broken in the system. So I spent a great deal of time rubbing elbows with the who's who in Washington, D.C., so I was in the political realm. I was a speaker at a lot of keynote events um, that, you know, I met with like top level um, VA officials, uh, military officials, and so on. I was even a guest at the White House and a former president still follows me on Twitter. So there's a, a lot of um, good girl in there. Like I did all the right things. I acted the way I was supposed to act. I said the things I was supposed to say. Um, I followed the script, as I say. And part of my advocacy work was being able to stand up to wrongdoing, um, accountability, and oversight, and so on. Like some senators, you would take my call. If I called their office, they would pass me right through. You don't you don't get that if you aren't somebody who, you know, has a voice that others respect. So one thing led to another. And a few years ago, my life just basically imploded. 26 years of building a life just came crashing down. Um, I had to go into hiding for about six months. And I just kind of bounced around and tried to figure out what am I going to do? I've got education. I have experience. I worked in the medical field. I worked in the legal field. I worked in management. And then when I became my own boss, I was, you know, a CEO for many years of three distinct businesses that I was running one at a time over the course of the years. So I had a lot of experience, but I had forgotten about the fact that, you know, I looked at myself in the mirror and said, who am I? I really, I've been doing what everybody expected me to do, but what do I want to do? 
what makes me happy because right now I'm not very happy. I mean, I, I have got to reclaim this for myself and not rely on anyone else to, to participate in that or to take it away. So I basically just took ownership of my life and I took accountability for myself. You know, I was holding the world at large accountable, but I also had to walk the walk and talk the talk. I had to be able to do that for myself. So I did some soul searching. I had been seeing what I call my Zen mentor. Um, she's a Buddhist chaplain. And I had actually been sitting with her every week for five years straight without missing a day. And I was learning how to become more centered, more aligned, more at peace with myself to release a lot of the codependency that came with the type of marriage that I had um, and the circumstances that I was in. And by then my kids were literally, the day I left was the day my youngest turned 18. And he eventually, once I was able to get our own place, he moved in with me and then his other brother moved in with me during COVID. So like I brought my family back together again under the same roof um, with minor exceptions. And in that process, though, I, I really, I was not going to cut off aspects of myself. Um, the interesting thing was, is during the divorce, um, after the first marriage, I became an ethical non-monogamist. I started dating within the swinger scene. So this was back in 2003, 2004. So I had experience with ethical non-monogamy a long time ago. Really quick, is ethical non-monogamy, is that basically a way of saying like an open relationship? Correct. It's an umbrella and it um, includes swingers, um, open relationship dynamics, polyamory, Although polyamory wasn't a buzzword back then, it was just um, swingers are open were the main terms. So I, you know, when I went back to Washington, D.C., thinking that my ex was not going to make it and we needed to say our final goodbyes, I, you know, asked for two weeks off from work and kissed my boyfriend goodbye and said, I'll be back in a few weeks. And two weeks turned into two months and et cetera, et cetera. So, like, I really... I went back into the second marriage very open about the fact that I had identified during that divorce period that I am bisexual at the very least, and that I wanted to have an open dynamic. Um, it didn't work out. We tried, he come, you know, come to find out he likes his cake and wants to eat it too. He, he was the one that was cheating on me. And I was like, there's no reason for us to have infidelity when I am so open and endorsing of an open marriage, but it was not a two-way street. Um, so to be clear, the he was type and he just didn't have the emotional capacity the emotional intelligence and the maturity to navigate an open dynamic. So I went back to being monogamous in our second marriage, much to my dismay. So when I was assessing the things that made me unhappy and evaluating the things that did make me happy, I looked back on before I had even met him, I was a professional swimwear model and I wanted to get back into modeling. But I was 49 years old at that time. 
And I thought to myself, oh gosh, nobody's going to want to see a 49-year-old mother of three. Nobody's going to want to date a 49-year-old, you know, who's had three kids. Like I figured I was listening to all the programming that society says that your value is basically uh, before you're 40. And I but I said, fuck it. You know, I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to go. I'm going to start dating again. And I'm not going to hide the fact that I'm a bisexual woman, that I'm, you know, I've got kinks. I, you know, I want to be able to start living life. And an interesting thing happened. <laughs> um, in the dating scene, a lot of the younger guys apparently are into the older, more mature women. And there is a such a thing as cougars. And so I learned very, very quickly that I was actually a hot commodity. I had joined Tinder. Oh, my goodness, Paul, you're not going to believe this. So I had joined Tinder um, thinking, okay, I'll just dip my toes in the dating world. This will be an efficient way to do it, right? I had 3,600 matches in the first 48 hours. And I was like, holy shit. Okay, this is work. Now I have to swipe through all this. And, you know, and I was like, wow. Simultaneously speaking, I was also exploring ethical non-monogamy in the polyamory um, avenue, I guess you could say. I wanted, I knew that I needed an actual connection. I couldn't just have so-called casual sex in, in like hookups. The hookup culture really didn't, fit for me as far as relationships are concerned, partnerships. So I had gone to a local um, BDSM club that held classes about a variety of topics and they had like a monthly polyamory meeting. So I wanted to talk to other people in polyamorous dynamics to understand it, to how to, how to navigate it and how to be a really good partner um, for any type of partnership that I chose to, to step into. I, that's where I met my, um, first primary partner and he was also a dom. And so he was introducing me into the BDSM world in a more formal way. Cause when I was a swinger, yeah, we did light bondage and, you know, things like that. But my days as a swinger, I learned, you know, I'm an exhibitionist, which fed into the whole modeling and showing off my imperfect body. So I started modeling and I was doing kink and fetish and BDSM modeling. I worked with multiple photographers um, and I was producing a lot of content, but I had nowhere really to put it. I couldn't put it on social media. Um, but I wanted to show it off. So I started posting some of it over on a site called FetLife and it got quite a large um, response. And I thought, well, shoot, I'm just going to go ahead and monetize this. And I started in OnlyFans and I was wanting to get into porn and things like that because what was happening was as I started dating, my glow up was instant. Like my glow up after I left was instant. But as I started doing the things that. Sorry, what do you mean? Me by, free, what yeah. do you mean by your glow up? My glow up? Oh my yeah. gosh. Um, well, for starters, without even trying, without going to the gym or dieting, I lost 40 pounds. I actually used to be 
fairly pudgy. I'm still curvy. I'm only five foot tall, um, but I've got curves. I've got um, a lot of ass. <laughs> so I'm very curvy. I had a peach on me, you know? And, and it's like, women have been taught to like hide those things or to be ashamed of those things. And here I was, um, I don't have a lot of stretch marks, but I do have stretch marks and I wasn't hiding that. I wasn't trying to Photoshop. In fact, I worked with photographers who specifically did not Photoshop my pictures because I wanted to show that women of my age are sensual. They're very sexual. They're very um, alluring. And that my value is well beyond what's in my brain or what sheepskin is hanging on my wall or how many kids I've you know, produced in this world or how good my marriage is, et cetera, et cetera. It was like, you know, I'm beautiful and I want to be able to express that. So I got into a throuple dynamic. Um, I was what's called a unicorn. Um, um, I was the third in a couple dynamic where I had, she and I were the girlfriend and girlfriend. He and I were boyfriend and girlfriend. They were girlfriend and boyfriend, and we were all a cohesive partnership. And that was, that became the core dynamic. And then we had, and then I had accessory type, um, secondary partners and we all knew each other. You know, we actually would all go out. We could go to a social event and we could all be in the same room. So I stepped into a world where there was no jealousy and where your sexuality was actually very um, liberated and celebrated and respected. And that's the other thing. There was respect and consent and so on. So I was moving through those circles. I was... Um, just having the time of my life, to be honest. And the happier I became, the more beautiful I would appear. If people who knew me then and saw me now were like, holy shit, girl, like you were just glowing up because I I emitted light. I, I, I just would glow with, with this joy in my life. And it showed in my pictures and it showed when I, be, when I became a burlesque performer, I felt very empowered. I felt very alive. I felt very fulfilled. Um, and it was a process of self-actualization that stems from Abraham Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs, which we'll get into in a second. But I hope that answers your question about like what my tra trajectory was, what I did before becoming a full-time sex worker. Um, I was doing hot girl shit. <laughs> And I was making good money doing it. And I took the knowledge of being an online sex worker when the pandemic hit. I paid it forward by teaching because I was a business owner already. I was a writer. I was already branded on the Internet. I had my own following before I even did any of these things. Um, I lost a lot of people along the way when I started announcing these salacious things. I mean, people were clutching their pearls and oh, you used to be such a good girl. And I was like, exactly. And that is not what I'm going to be anymore. I am going to be an ethical woman. I'm going to be a woman with integrity. I have standards. I have boundaries. It's not as though um, it's a free for all with me. I'm very, very well boundaried. 
but I have standards that must be met in every area of my life, whether it's in my relationships or my work ethic or whatever. So, you know, I had people that were kind of, they had this cognitive dissonance. They're like, but I knew you before, but I know you now. And I'm not sure how I feel about this because I've been taught that that's naughty and that's dirty and that's shameful and that's, that's slutty and that's whatever. But at the same time, they saw how happy I was and how empowered I was. And they had like this twinge of, well, I want that too. So what's your secret, Tori? How are you doing it? So I started giving advice um, on how to um, run an OnlyFans um, account. And I now have over 9,000 people that I've mentored since COVID hit on how to be an online sex worker. So I pass, I pay it forward. I pay it forward a lot, especially when it comes to empowering yourself in regard to expressing yourself in regard to um still being a good girl like i have to follow the law i'm not going to sacrifice um my safety my wellness my well-being um for anyone for any reason um i did that when i was married you know i'm not gonna do that anymore so i've been living my best life doing hot girl shit. And then I figured out that I needed to take it one more step further because like I said, what's next? You know, I've already checked off. Okay. I'm, I'm a porn star. There's thousands of pictures of my ass on the internet. I make money off of that too. I do shows and people throw money at me uh, to take my clothes off on stage in front of a whole audience. Like, what is stopping me from doing this one next thing? And the one next thing was somewhat of a idea that I got because I had received so many requests from men and women um, that the one that, you know, they wanted to hook up. And I was like, you know, I, some people approach with levels of disrespect or entitlement thirsty guys that just have zero manners whatsoever. Um, not even relationship material. They're like, Hey baby, you know, unsolicited dick pics for days, you know, like I can just open my inbox and I would have hundreds and hundreds of messages from people demanding access to me. And I thought, you know what? Um, I'll shut this down real quick. <laughs> you can have access to me, but you're going to pay me and it's going to be legal. And so um, I receive a lot of hate and criticism for choosing to do what I do. But the thing is, is I have a great deal of compassion for human suffering. I know what it's like to be touch starved. And um, it all ties in with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I had studied extensively intimacy, human connection is on the bottom of that pyramid because it is absolutely essential for your survival, essential, along with food, water, shelter, clothing, okay? Humans cannot survive without it, let alone thrive. And that's why intimacy, human connection, sex is the only thing listed twice on Maslow's hierarchy of needs for the process of self-actualization. 
And by going into the sex work industry in increments and in stages, um, I am my most self-actualized, most fulfilled, most vibrant expression of myself. And I'm literally happy to do this. So I have a strong desire to be of service to people who otherwise would not have access to intimacy, whether it be through disabilities. I have all this experience um, in the medical field, as well as my hands-on um, experience, my advocate advocacy experience. So those with disabilities, um, they, they don't move through the dating circles the same way the rest of society does. Um, people who are older, who are widowed, who are lonely, um, people who are young that are just intimidated by how, how to please a woman. So I'm like, I have all this experience. I have all this compassion and I have all this desire and I have like skill sets shall we say, <laughs> that I'm known for <laughs> and can easily demonstrate from the comfort of your home. Um, the thing is, is I'm good at what I do and I'm proud of what I do. And I want to be able to impact humans and society as a whole in a way that makes sense because it's safe, it's sane, it's consensual. Um, I have guys that come in to see me because they don't have the time, energy, and resources. They have the money. They don't have the time, energy, and resources to have to go through 3,600 matches on Tinder. That's work. Like I said, they would rather, like they, I mean, they could take a girl out, wine her, dine her, spend, you know, a couple hundred dollars on dinner and, you know, going out for the night and may not get lucky. And then maybe down the road, um, they may become intimate and they are completely uh, not aligned. Maybe there's just no match to that pleasure factor. Maybe she's just too uptight because she listened to what society told her was good or bad or dirty or shameful or whatever. And here I am like fully expressed, very kinky, um, very experienced. And I could not only match their energy, but I can actually amplify their energy. So they come, they were like, I could spend four figures an hour on you um, and save money because I'll spend that much with somebody that just may not work out. And then you have that uncomfortable conversation of, I need you to show me your STD results and ethical non-monogamists actually take that very seriously and literally have the results like on their phone at parties. You know, they're like, okay, I got tested last month, but testing is only good as, you know, the a short window um, surrounding that actual test date. I was getting tested back home before I even came here every week because I take my sexual health very, very seriously. I have never had an STD in my life. So safe sex is mandatory with me, whether I'm in a brothel or not, but by law, condoms are required. And we do what's called a dick check before we even book anything. Like sexual health is, is basically guaranteed here because I get tested every week. Today, actually, right before we did this, uh, today is doctor day. 
So um, a doctor comes on site and every week we get tested, we do the swabbing, we do blood work as well. That gets reported to the local sheriff's department who before I even got approved to work here, I had to be fingerprinted, background checked. Um, I had to go through, I had to jump through a lot of hoops to do this. And so when somebody comes through our doors uh, to choose someone such as myself to be intimate with, they're actually saving money. Even though sticker shock, you know, um, you can really show that it saves money and the hidden costs later of, let's say you are hooking up with somebody on Tinder and you haven't asked for their STD results. And then you've got the bigger cost of picking up, um, you know, an STD or an STI, um, you know, it can be costly in other ways. So I provide a safe, sane and consensual environment with someone who can relate to people at their most fundamental levels. They can come in and fully express themselves. You know, some guys come in and they're like, well, I'm, I'm too afraid to say what I really want. No, tell me, seriously, let's make that fantasy happen. Like I, you know, having a threesome was a typical Tuesday back home. So if you wanna bring another girl in, come on, let's do it. Like I am all for that, you know? And, and right. so I coach um, couples that wanna open their marriage how to navigate that. It's not just a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And they come in and see me. They actually come in and go, okay, how do I navigate this? What happens if, you know, um, an example would be last week, a couple came in, he had experience in polyamory. She did not. She, um, one of the first things I do is make sure that she's not being pressured into anything she doesn't want to do. Um, that they're both in it together. And she was like, you know, I'm curious and I want to do it, but I also want the safe space so that if it's not my cup of tea that I can back out without apology or without hurting anybody's feelings. And I want to have a hand in who he's with and get to know her. And, you know, and, and it's a no strings attached situation. There's no entanglement there, you know, there's not going to be drama involved, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm serving society in ways that society probably doesn't think about. Um, and in ways that society assumes are different than what it really is. I think that's very well said. And I, and and I love it. I yeah. genuinely love connecting and seeing humans. I'm actually pansexual. Okay. I started with the bisexual because that's the most recognizable way of saying I'm attracted to men and women. But in reality, I'm pansexual. I accept all humans. I meet them exactly where they are. There is no um, judgment. There's no um, shaming. I don't kink shame. I don't body shame. I don't... Um, none of that like you are fully accepted you're not going to make fun of me for my, my door. you're not going to make fun of me for my fetish no <laughs> i'm just no, not at all in fact i'm probably going to show you a thing or two <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> hell yeah i i cater to the kink and fetish crowd but i also cater to virgins um i cater to the the businessman who um 
really just wants kissing and cuddling and going out to dinner or going on an out date to go dancing or having arm candy for an event or, um, you know, um, a couple that wants to explore in a safe way. Um, I see all walks of life, all ages, all backgrounds. Um, a lot of who I see here because of the cougar element, the MILF element, um, a lot of the younger guys come in to see me and they love the fact that I can teach them things, that I can match their energy. I am high energy. Shoot, I have one dude. Um, I usually end up breaking this fingernail. It's broken right now. This is the third time this dude has broken this fingernail doing stuff midair with me. He's strong. <laughs> That's funny. So, like I have fun here. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I, it sounds... Sounds and like I get it. to pick who I who I party with. A party is any time booked with me. It's a universal term for a booking. Gotcha. Um, if someone comes in and acts entitled or is abusive or disrespectful, I walk them. Like I'm here for alignment, and the money comes with my alignment. So I turn money away because I I'm not desperate to book somebody. I pick gotcha. and choose. Um, I don't have to do anything. I don't want to do anything with. Um, I don't have to do. Well, this is the way I say it. I don't have to do anything. I don't want to do with anyone. I don't want to do it with for anything less than what I want to do it for. I have full command, full free will, full autonomy in my body. Um, I call the shots and when they come in and we do a lineup, and I get picked in that lineup and we do a booking, I'm also picking them. They have to meet my expectations too. And right. when I say that, it's, you know, I'm not going to judge them, but if they come in and they're giving me any indicators that they are a safety issue, that they may be a problem, let's say they're highly intoxicated, um, maybe they are misogynistic and disrespectful and, and entitled, I won't party with them. They have to earn this, regardless of how much money they pay me. Yeah, I mean, hey, you know, it's a, it's a seller's market, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> well, well, good on you. Um, I gotta ask you, you know, you're, I've watched you tell this story before and you're, you're so confident. And I think that's probably very inspiring for many people that, that would uh, consider taking or making some of the same decisions you have. But I got to imagine that you haven't always felt so confident in your ways. I got to imagine that sometimes you may have been questioning yourself and, and wondering, am Am I, you know, you, like you say, you, you live that good girl life the whole, for your whole life. And I have to imagine that that was hard. So my question is, were there times where it was challenging? You, it sounds like you went through a process of redefining your boundaries and redefining what you wanted out of life. Were there times where you were, you wondered like, ah, shoot, should I just go back? Should I, should I, should I just go back home? Should I just throw it all away? Or were you... Uh -uh. No. Cause you talked about incremental. I didn't know if that was the mm -hmm. key to it or what. So here's the thing. I have a whole lot of motherfuckers to prove wrong. <laughs> Spite drives me in some ways. Okay. So there's that. Um, so I won't lie that I am very determined to show that all of the things that made me successful before are still 
in me. It still drives me. I mean, one does not get invited to the White House if you're not a mover and a shaker and somebody that people listen to do. At the same time, I also recognized and had, it's like peeling away layers of an onion. You know, you, you have to start with the outer layers and you might cry in the process, you know, it's not going to be pleasant. Um, doing your own inner work and, and uh, I mentioned Abraham Maslow, the psychiatrist. Um, I'm also going to uh, mention Carl Jung. He talked about shadow, your shadow self, your subconscious. I did a lot of inner work. I did a lot of shadow work. In fact, I was teaching and coaching it as part of one of my businesses. Um, I had to let go of my literal identity. Um, I had to peel back the layers that I can identify that did not serve me anymore, such as the codependency. Great example. Um, I would not speak up in a confrontational way with my ex-spouse because I wanted to keep the peace. I didn't want to have him become more agitated, more violent or anything like that. So I, I, I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say what I really should have said. I didn't put my foot down as strongly as I should have. And then that became me getting just walked on and, and taken advantage of and manipulated and so on. And so I had to learn about narcissistic abuse. I had to learn about a lot of different things and let go of that trauma. You know, there's a lot of betrayal and deceit that, that happened and I had to learn how to trust myself because a lot of times my gut would tell me, oh, this is a bad idea. Oh God, he's up to something. Something is gonna happen and boom, there it is. Well, how many times did I ignore my intuition or my better judgment? So I started becoming really good at listening to my intuition and using better judgment and not trying to keep the peace. And if, you know, if somebody was, you know, was rudely shaming me online, I would laugh at it and go, really, you're just projecting your own shame, your own internalized, uh, repressed sexual urges and so on. I'm just over here being unapologetic about it. And if you don't like it, you can move on. Uh, my block list <laughs> on social media Scroll, scroll, scroll. <laughs> like I, it, with a few clicks, I can make someone disappear from my realm. Okay. Um, there are some persistent ones. And if you follow me on social media, you'll see me basically trolling my trolls. I make a mockery out of their absurd behavior because nothing they say or do can truly hurt me. I'm good and solid with who I am. So um, if you want to body shame me, okay, whatever. I'm the one getting paid for these curves. I have people that come in because of these curves. I have people watching my porn because of these curves. Like um, every body size, there's a demand for it. Every single body size, there is a demand for it, both in say online sex work, in um in real life sex work you know legal sex work um outside of brothels it's there's demand there too um on the burlesque stage you know like all bodies are beautiful i'm just here to show that i love my body 
and that others can love it too. And so this confidence that I have came from going through my most vulnerable and most fragile periods of my life and coming out the other side stronger and better than I was before. It is terrifying to leave every, all your worldly possessions behind with $12 in your pocket in the middle of the night and go, what the fuck am I going to do? I didn't plan for this. And having your friends rise up and say, you can come stay at my couch. I'll keep you hidden until you can figure out your next steps or, Hey, I'm sending you some money to put gas in your tank. You know, that was three years before I made this decision. I was not desperate when I got here. If I were desperate, I could have gone into sex work the day I left, but that's yeah. not what I did. I went into it purposely because, because I am confident in myself, because I know who I am, because I did the inner work, because I let go of those outer layers of trauma and, you know, shedding the belief systems that, um, you know, I had to be good to be valued. Well, you know what? I'm good. Yeah. I'm good at being bad. <laughs> Just to be sure I understand. Did you go into hiding because you were concerned about your safety with your husband? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Gotcha. And now that's why I own the fact that I use my real name and I'm very proud of doing what I do because part of that was I'm not going to hide anything anymore. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hiding does not feel good. It was necessary, but I am uniquely positioned. The state um, gave me and my um, boys a, a, a fake address. It's called the address confidentiality program. Um, so I was able to stay under the radar with the state's help. Um, now I'm in another state and I'm literally behind a locked gate um, in a facility that has panic buttons in every room that pipes in straight to the sheriff's department. I mean, if I have any safety issues here, um, I feel safer here at a brothel than I do, say, in my own home. Um I have more protections here. Sure. Sure. I would imagine. So, um, so, um, so I got to ask like, so you had your first divorce and is, am I correct to understand that during that like period between your first and uh, the first time you got divorced and then the second time you got remarried or the time you got remarried, um, mm -hmm that that's kind of when you discovered that you might be, you said at first bisexual, that's when you discovered that, yeah. correct? Yeah. I, well, I'm going to roll this back a little bit. Sure. Um, I was very, very confused and conflicted growing up being attracted to girls and boys. Okay. So it was a lifetime of attraction and right. confusion and so on. I did not act on it until I started dating a swinger and going to swinger parties and exploring and becoming connected with other women intimately and going, what the hell was I waiting for? Yeah. You were suppressing <laughs> you know, like, that. You uh, were suppressing that. Uh, what did you say? The shadow person within you or what, yeah, is that well, what you said? It's your shadow self. Um, shadow self. It, it, it was like, I didn't make it a secret when I remarried my ex. I made sure he knew. 
And then it was actually a goal of mine to have an open dynamic so that I could explore and that he could also equally explore other partnerships because when you are monogamous and you're bisexual, you have to pick a gender. Yeah. Yeah. You're cutting off the other half of who you are. And I just was like, I'm done with that. I am done with that. And so when I set out on this journey, I was just like dating men, women equally. And that's why the throuple dynamic was so perfect for me. Um, you know, I, like I said, I had other partners and they had their partners. Like we we're all just one big polyamorous soup of, of people who support each other. And I'm driven by what's called compersion. Um, compersion is basically at its essence. If you're happy, I'm happy. So like if my partner is their most fulfilled self, then I get the benefit of that. And if I'm my my most fulfilled self, then they get the benefit of that because there's this happiness and joy and fulfillment that just spills out of me as opposed to being part of who you are and only saying half of what you want to say or doing half of what you really like to do. I mean, that's a life not lived. A life half lived is not what I want to do. And so um, I was well partnered when I came here and um, I adore my partners to this day, but I basically de-escalated, like I kind of downgraded um, our connection into more of like friends with benefits because I'm only home, I'm from Colorado. Um, I'm only home every few months, you know, it's unfair to them. Like I basically said, you know, seek what makes you happy. Don't try to hold on to this thing that we have just because it's been, it's been good. Let's see where it goes, but understand I give you my blessing. I, I mean, they always had it. It's not like it was suddenly I was giving it to them, but you know what I'm saying? Like I'm endorsing doing what's best for them, for them, because right now I have to do what's best for me. I love you, but I'm going to go do this thing. And they were absolutely supportive. We still stay in touch. We still catch up, but it's a different kind of partnership now as a result, because my focus is on what I do here. And, you know, it's, something that matters to me and I write about it. I don't, I I keep things anonymous. Like my, my client's confidentiality is the utmost um, importance. Okay. So I write about my experiences without outing them. You know, that's never, never something that anybody has to worry about. But I also write about the pros and the cons, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, I write about it from a perspective, at, you know, as a writer, I can articulate some of the human elements in a way that people understand how profound it can be to have human connection and to make such an impact on clients, um, majority men, but, you know, women as well. Um I have clients that only come in and see me. Um, I just wrote a story a few days ago over on Facebook about that. And like, I'm the only one that they feel comfortable with because we built that trust and we built that connection 
and they don't have to worry about me interfering in their life um, or, you know, having an episode and going, why don't you write? You know, it's like when, when they're ready to come in, they're going to come in. I do stay in touch with them in between our visits. I have regulars that sometimes I have one regular come in and party with me eight days in a row, but then I didn't see them for two months, you know, so it can be kind of intermittent. Um, and, but we stay in touch. It's like, how are you doing? Like, I genuinely care about my clients. I genuinely want them to have their needs met and to be able to fill those gaps um, in a way that makes sense for them and for me. So, yeah, I definitely, did I lose well, you? Nope, you didn't. I uh, just oh. wanted to share for, I wanted okay. to pause for a moment to share with folks that uh, we'll have a link to Tori's uh, page uh, in our show notes. So if you go into the show notes for this podcast episode, you can connect with Tori on uh, various social media websites, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, OnlyFans, FetLife, and so much more. Um, so definitely check out the link in the podcast description. I want to be able to, you know, if you have any questions, if you're really inspired by Tori, or if you're in Nevada and you'd like to party with Tori, uh, wanted to give you that option. So, um, I want to shout out. I appreciate yeah. it. I do encourage people to follow along, even if they're just mildly curious, it's very eye opening because I, like I said, I'm uniquely positioned. Um, I do have layers of protection in place that most sex workers don't have. They have to use fake names. They um, are kind of hush-hush about what their experiences are within the walls of the brothel. There's also expectations from the brothels themselves because there's strict regulations about you know, solicitation and so on. In fact, you were talking about crossing the state line. Let me tell you how crazy this is. I'm close to Lake Tahoe. And there is a casino, a resort on the state line. And I can go on what's called an outdate anywhere in the state in Nevada. Someone can book me and whisk me off to Vegas for a weekend. Hint, hint, would love to go to Vegas. Um, but the thing is, is like, I can go on these outdates, but I have to stay within state lines. There is a resort that if I go in one entrance, I'm within the boundaries of the law. I am in state line. If I go out a side entrance to the valet, I have broken the law. It's in the same See. building. Okay. So like they warned me when you go on an out date and if they take you to Lake Tahoe, you have got to be very, very, very careful to go in and out the correct entrance of this particular property. That's so crazy. Even I'm in and the it, same building. You know, if I need ballet service, I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, that's so crazy. And it illustrates. But I also have a private driver. So yeah, I have a driver 24-7. So I can always put it in the hands of our, you know, chauffeur to to make sure that I am not crossing the state lines. But if <laughs> right. I'm but if if the client is providing the transportation, I have to be really, really careful. Um not to cross the state line with that client. I can cross the state line just doing my own thing. 
But in the course of a booking, I must stay within the state line. Right. In the capacity of your job. That's Mm -hmm. that is crazy that just going through the wrong door. And that is like that right there perfectly encapsulates the insanity Mm -hmm. that is this patchwork of laws that we have, whether it's with sex work or, or drug laws. Um, so you mentioned, uh, you know, the experience of, of becoming a legal sex worker. I really want to dive into that. Um, I think that, that a lot of people find this topic fascinating. Um, one of the things I wanted to make clear though, before we dive into it, uh, if, cause some of our listeners might be like, Cole, why aren't you asking about, uh, you know, you mentioned therapy and yeah. your transformation and how you how you you know found this new identity and a lot of people that watch this show you know are for the decriminalization of drugs so they're thinking like was she do it did she, did she do drugs to attribute to this transformation but i've read online you've said that you you didn't uh, that really this was didn't. just now, I therapy did, i did research it okay i did a ton of research um i was actually i paid the money and everything but i backed out um, because there were some logistics, I had to actually leave the area. It was one of the, it was during the time that I was on the move. Okay. Um, I had paid the money to do a medicine journey with MDMA and I had done a ton of research on it. Um, I had done research on mushrooms. I'd done research on everything, basically everything. Cause I was so open to any type of healing element. So I was in no way, shape or form like anti, oh no, I'm not going to do, you know, psychedelics or anything. I was like, Ooh, I want to know if this is something that would, you know, let's, let's go to the Amazon jungle and do ayahuasca. Like, let's do this thing. Like I was very enthusiastic about it, but I was also looking at my own situation and the type of resources and the logistics of say leaving the country or something to do something like this, um, which angered me that there were so many studies and they were doing them on the very veterans that I was advocating for, for over a decade, the MDMA um, treatments and the ketamine treatments and like all of these different types of healing modalities for say PTSD or even traumatic brain injuries, it rewires everything. Right. And so here I am with a spiritual healer who is like, yeah, this is the way to go. And let's talk about that. You know, I had full endorsement from people that I was already seeking healing through about taking it to that next level. I did dabble, of course. I had opportunities where there were some things that were available to me. I was in Colorado for fuck's sakes. I mean, it, was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it is not hard to have availability of these things. Sure. Um, so it's it was a personal decision in some ways to just hold off. Um, again, I was honoring my gut. You know how I it's, talk about it that. It sounds intuition? like it was a. It sounds like it was a personal decision, but it also sounds like it was a personal decision that was influenced by the inconvenience of our laws. You know what that I mean? That's very it's, true. It's kind of like. Yes, yeah. because there were some other complicating variables going on. I was in a court, I was in a court um, situation 
Um, and you know, because of the sure. divorce and like, you know, and I was like, uh, this yeah, you is gotta be careful with that. With kids and stuff. So this is what I did. This is what I did for my 50th birthday. I booked a one-way ticket to Europe and I went to a trauma release retreat, basically, uh, someone who could go deeper into the whole subconscious aspects of myself. I knew how to you know, the practicalities of shadow work, but I needed somebody who can go deeper in, into those deeply embedded hooks. And I spent a week in a full immersion retreat in Italy uh, doing trauma release. So I sought therapy in multiple ways. That one was more intense. Um, you know, I have friends who have had great success um, because the whole court thing with me right now and the fact that I live and work in a drug-free environment, um, I, you know, I could, I could get tested at any time and I don't want to pop hot on anything. So, you know, I'm, I'm drug-free right now, but I endorse it and I actually enjoy many things um, that I was able to try. I still have a lot more exploration to go, but I also have a lot more years to do it in. So I'm yeah. not in any rush, but you're absolutely right. If it were more available and accepted and that people were more educated on how beneficial um, just cannabis alone, we're, we're still fighting the fight about cannabis. Okay, are you kidding me? I mean, this is ridiculous. How dumb do you have to be that you can't look at the studies and the research and, and the success stories and like, hello, it is right there in front of us. This literally is life-saving for people, but we're going to sit here and shame it and have a stigma surrounding it and, you know, um, forbid it and make it hard to get or make it hard to get it in a safe way or make it inaccessible because it's so expensive. Even if you go through the pharmaceutical industry to get access to like MDMA or whatever, um, it's cost prohibitive, but yet in the right hands for the right reasons, it can be a very healing thing. For me, BDSM was healing. I learned how to alchemize. I basically learned how to transmute and have a different um, relationship with pain. I, I'm able to turn pain into pleasure. You know, I'm a, what's called a BDSM switch. I started off as a submissive. I did different types of sensory play, um, fire play, impact play, like needle play, you name it. I, that I stuff been, sounds crazy I, fun. Oh, oh <laughs> I, yes. I talked about that online a bit and there are certain spicy sites where um, it's not even allowed wow. for me to publish it, even though it's safely done. It's yeah. like, uh, there's so many parallels here. Like the stuff that I do in the BDSM world actually is why I have the whole court thing and why I'm like, I got arrested for an ass photo. So short story there, there's, it's a sure. longer story and I'm writing my book about it. That's part of it. But like, you can get in trouble. You can get arrested for an ass photo. You can get arrested for, um, you know, cannabis in certain states. Like, 
I agree that we need to decriminalize it, but much like the brothel, the legal prostitution industry, we need to not only decriminalize it across the U.S., but we need to legalize it across the U.S. There are only 20 licensed brothels in, this, in the U.S. They are all here in Nevada. My brothel gets approximately, according to my head honcho here, who is like head of HR and everything, um, she said that she gets approximately 40,000 applications a year. So we are handpicked, cherry picked based on our skill sets, our professionalism, um, our backgrounds, you know, our experience and so on. So I feel a very unique niche in, in the market, if you will, uh, because some of the um, more mature men don't want somebody young. It, it, it kind of freaks them out. Um, some guys go for the young ones, um, but yet some of the young guys want the more mature ones. Like there's a market for what I do, how I do it and why I do it. And because I have a proven track record of not only being experienced, but I'm actually um, someone who can educate about things like polyamory, open dynamics, threesomes, um, you know, BDSM, the different types of BDSM kinks and fetishes. And, you know, like I have all this experience that, basically were acquired through my lifestyle circles and my own desires and, and my own kinks and fetishes and, and, you know, relationship dynamics and, and so on. But like, I can apply that to my healing journey. It's like, why, why did it have to be so hard to access something like this? Why does it have to be so hard to hire a legal prostitute to come to a brothel why is it so shameful to even go to a brothel or why you know like we've got people who are doing you know desperate people doing desperate things and that's how in the you know on the streets we're getting tainted you know products and we're getting tainted hookups and we're getting you know like um, things that can kill you. People die because yeah. it's not legalized. Right. That's asinine to me. It, when mm -hmm. it, it's already proven that it works here in Nevada. In fact, the STD rates went down after um, brothels became legalized in the 1970s. Um, we don't have... A, a, a problem with STDs because we're doing it the way we're doing it. And if we had more brothels, we can universally across the nation reduce the STD rates. We could reduce arrest rates, incarceration rates, families breaking up. Um, you know, like literally in many ways I can argue and we won't have enough time on this episode, but you know, in many ways, um, I'm actually helping marriages because I think not you're helping I more than I think you're helping more than marriages in many cases. I think you're helping society, like you say, people that don't have time for relationships or anything mm -hmm. else. Like I think that, like you say, if it, it is a human need, you know, for just human touch, but also intimate mm -hmm. relationships. 
And I'm sorry, but you know, a lot of people don't have access to that, whether or not it's because of their social skills and actual disability or whatever mm-hmm. else. And so to provide safe legal access, look, this is the thing. When I started to promote the fact that I'd be talking to some legal sex workers, I referred to it as the world's oldest profession. And I didn't come up with that term. Uh, I'm not sure who did, but it's so true. I mean, it is a core human need. Mm -hmm. And if there is a demand for something, somebody can supply for that demand. And if it's between two consenting adults, why not? Why not? You know, and the amount of regulations and professionalism that exists in like two things. Um, I have a client who openly says how much his wife is is appreciating the side of him that he that she's not been able to see in a long time. He and I don't do any sex. Okay, I'm very creative in getting his engines restarted. And he's able to take that home to her. His his need is that he felt broken. I am I am touching on the human. It is not about his cock. It is about the human carrying it, okay? And he feels empowered. He feels whole again. I cannot begin to tell you how deeply I am touched and honored that I get to enhance marriages. I have, I got pulled in um, multiple times for a client who is, um, I want to be as as broad as I can be because I don't do anything that's identifiable, but he basically, he's um, disabled, um, former military, but he's a priest. And his wife brings him here. If that does not blow some people's minds, I don't know what will. But like, there are people who need this for various reasons, who have people that love them and endorse them coming here, such as the husband and wife that come in. And they are both excited Um, Because I do narrow it down. I want to make sure both adults are consenting and one's not being pressured into doing something they don't want to do because then I will not do it. It's not ethical. (laughs) Calling for a lineup. (laughs) (laughs) Proof I'm at a brothel. Yeah, I was (laughs) going to say you're the first guest. (laughs) You're the first guest to call in from a a legal brothel. It's so cool. Yeah. So So, cool. So the thing is, is like, I know that it's frustrating in the cannabis industry or in any other type of drugs that are on the market that end up getting too expensive, too risky, to cut with other stuff. Um, you don't know what you're getting out there in the wild, wild west, right? Um, whether it's dating, whether it's um, even in your own marriage. I mean, okay, if your partner is going to go outside of your partnership with someone, I would much rather know that like my ex, when he went outside of the marriage, he he removed all informed consent from me. He put me at risk. He could have killed me with exposure to STDs and STIs. I was more at risk 
to STDs and STIs than I am here in a brothel. Think about it, right? It's like, how can I possibly get across how much we need to legalize brothels, how much we need to legalize um, healing modalities that have had studies done, that have helped entire communities of, say, veterans with PTSD or whatever the case may be. Like, we have a lot of parallels here, and that's why I really wanted to talk to you to say, look, society is taught, you know, oh, say no to drugs. And then they're taught, you know, that um, be a virgin until you're married and, you know, and, and dedicate your whole life to one man. And like, I shatter all of those molds saying, but wait, there's another side to this that we haven't even talked about and, and people are so afraid to talk about and um, for me, it needs to be talked about. It really does. I know my own children, they're adults. They know what I do. Okay. Um, my youngest son, when I first came out to my um, middle and youngest son, um, I was going to go public about being polyamorous, about being bisexual. You're, about really being quick, your youngest son really quick, your youngest son was 18 when you started this, right? That is correct. Yes. Yep. He was 18 the day I left. It was coincidental that he turned 18 the day I left. It just yep. happened to be the day I left was that day. Yeah. So I wasn't like counting down till he turned 18. So mom can take off. Like it was, he had to finish his senior year of high school and he was not a target of what was going on. I was. So he stayed behind, but we had a safety plan in place for him. And we ended up using that safety plan, but we got him graduated before that happened. So he was with me at the time of this conversation. Um, and then his brother came to visit for the weekend and, you know, and see us and so on. So I initially had the conversation with my middle son and I said, okay, here's what you need to know. Years ago, I was a swinger. I'm exploring polyamory. I am now starting to date. I am going to be public about the fact that I am bisexual. I am now in, you know, exploring BDSM. You're, there's going to be pictures and blah, blah, blah. Like I am giving them the ability to object or overcome any of their objections or concerns or answer any questions because I've also given them a little bit of a heads them. up. You're also giving yeah, them a good heads so, up because as a kid, like if I saw my mom, like as an 18 year old, if all of a sudden mm -hmm. I saw my mom, like, you know, doing BDSM on the internet, I'd be like, mom, what the fuck? Like, not that she's not exactly. allowed to do that, like, but how are you I, not going to tell I, me? <laughs> I, I have enough respect to tell, to tell them first. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so yeah. I told my middle son who had already gone off to college, been in college for a while, out on his own for a while. And he, he's my... um he's my stoic one. He's very spiritual. He's, you know, doesn't, he doesn't get upset or, or anything very easily, but when he does, it's because for good reason. So I'm having this conversation with him and I'm not sure how to read him at that point because he just was like stone-faced. And I said, so now's about the time. I would love to hear your feedback because you have not said a word and I don't think you even blinked what's going on. And he just goes, well, now I know where I get it from. 
Wow. That's awesome. He was like, he was having a, he was having an epiphany. (laughs) He was so relieved because, you know, he has at least this parent, me, who is going to accept him fully for who he is and endorse him living his fullest expression of himself. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, mom, you know, he says in college, He said, I was so afraid that I would be shunned or something. I was like, he said, not, not from you specifically, but I knew that if I told you, then dad would know. And I just didn't want to go into that territory. Now that you guys are not under the same roof, we can have this conversation freely and openly and holy shit, mom, how awesome go you, you know, then, um, next up was my youngest son. And I thought, okay. He's a little younger, didn't run off to college yet. Um, not as worldly as his brother was. So I have the conversation. He actually interrupted me. I was like, you know, it's this. And then polyamory means he goes, mom, 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 stop, stop, stop. And I was like, oh shit here. This is not going well. Um, he's, he's the one that's going to be upset. He goes, mom, you're talking to a kid that took two girls to prom. I know what polyamory is. I identify as, I was like, are you serious? Cause the prom was like the weekend before, you know? And I was like, I want pictures. Cause I couldn't for safety reasons, I couldn't be around for that, which was, you know, kind of regretful in many ways for me. It really kind of crushed me as a parent to not be involved in my son's senior prom, but to be able to find out that he was like, I know what you're talking about. Are you kidding? I'm already this way, you know? <laughs> And so they, they were very endorsing because they, they'd seen the stressed out mom, the, uh, the mom that kept the peace, the mom that didn't speak up when, you you know, just to keep things calm, you know, the, the mom that was being disrespected and the mom that, you know, really went through hell finally being happy again. And they're like, you know, we, we love seeing you happy. Like we've never seen this side of you before and we kind of like it. So keep going, you know, during pandemic, um, that throuple I told you about, we actually, uh, my youngest son, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, we, we were all helping, um, our girlfriend move. She was packing some things up and her mom had come over to get some stuff to put in storage. And that was the same week that the quarantine hit, like the second week of March or whatever, like March 8th or something like that in 2019. No, 2020. Sorry. So um, her mom ended up in the hospital with COVID and we were like, oh shit, we've all been exposed. What are we going to do? So we decided to combine our resources and all basically be under the same roof at her girlfriend's house because she has a large house. And so my son came with me. Um, and for two months, basically, we were all under the same roof. And my son got to see the daily interactions of how we love and nurture and support each other and how involved we are and how generous we are with each other and how basically how we all endorse each other's happiness. And he was like, you know, mom, I. I know that when you told me, I was like, oh, I know what it is. I, you know, identify, I even can relate in this way and blah, blah, blah. He said, but I've never seen you loved so preciously before. 
I have never seen you be so well taken care of. I have never seen you just feel safe. And I get to see that now and I like it. And I, I'm, I want you to keep doing this. And so, I mean, that to me was pretty profound that my, my son is like, for the first time in my life, mom, I see you for you. And I don't see the layers of protection that you had to build around you. And, and the, you know, the, the fact that you're valued in ways that I didn't get to witness as a kid. And so he got to see a healthier dynamic. He got to see the contrast of the unhappy, stressed out um, mom that was in a toxic, abusive environment, which then creates a layer of demonstration to him. Um, And I wanted him to not grow up to be that way towards his future partners. You know what I'm saying? Because we all basically do what we were taught or what we were witness to. And even if we know it's not healthy, it's familiar. And so I wanted him to have healthy perspectives on partnerships, relationships, et cetera. And he got to see that. And he was just really touched by seeing the mom that deserved to be loved the way I was being loved and, and happy, you know, the way I deserve to be happy. And, so I have to credit my boys for being my biggest cheerleaders because they saw the, the mom before and the mom after. And so, you know, it was not uncommon. Like we all were, we, after quarantine, we all, you know, moved back into my household, the boys moved in. And we, again, uh, my middle son, he, his industry was um, shut down. So I said, come on, I'll get a bigger place. And I got a bigger place and he moved in. And we got to have quality time as a new and improved version 2.0 family. And, um, but I was still doing photo shoots. I was still doing, um, I, I had like a, a membership at our local BDSM club that was, had very strict protocols during COVID since it was a private membership club. I just paid extra to be a VIP member and I got full use of a 3000 square foot dungeon. So I would go and film there. I would, you know, um, still following COVID protocols and sanitation and everything, but I was able to continue doing the things I was doing before COVID hit. Um, and so I would say, Hey, I'm heading down to the dungeon. I'm going to go, you know, film some porn. I got Viking porn today. And, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, um, and so I was very open with them about, you know, and I would walk out in like full on leather, full Dom outfit or something. I was street legal as far as my outfit, no nips or anything were, were out, but like I would go to sex clubs that I belonged to, you know, um, stay the whole weekend. And I'm like, Hey, I'm heading out to the Scarlet Ranch. I'll see you guys on Sunday afternoon. Like I never hid any of what I was doing. And, and they were just like, okay, mom, have fun, be safe, you know? And so they got to see how my, my relationships improved. They got to see how my lifestyle improved. They got to see how healing things like BDSM were for me. It's very therapeutic. A lot of people don't realize it. It's not a replacement for therapy, but it's an enhancement. If you are with someone who is skilled 
and ethical and so on. There's so many fake sure. doms out there. Oh my God, please. All well, these men out here that are like, oh baby, I'm going to be your dom. Um, number one, <laughs> who are you talking to? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you're barking up the wrong tree. Let's first talk about um, honorifics. You know, you just call me baby. I didn't consent to that. So right. you've already violated all the Dom rules just with that alone. So you don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. And here, let me educate you. And by then I've already blocked them. But you know what I mean? Like there's mm -hmm. a lot of people out there that are abusers hiding under the title of being a Dom. Yeah. And so I do want to clarify here when I say BDSM is healing and therapeutic. I am talking about skilled people in that lifestyle who are respected, who are embedded in the community as educators, as presenters. I was a presenter uh, for many different tastings events, you know, like as, as I learned and as I became known for really uh, being good at what I do, that escalated into um, now being able to teach it and to, you know, teach others how to do it. So yeah. long story short, like it's, it was very therapeutic for me, but it was also a very dedicated learning process with very trusted people who had a proven reputation. So I'm not saying that you're going to get um, healing from jackass Joe down the road who's a <laughs> self-professed dom okay there's a big difference but I also sought treatment and healing through shadow work and doing trauma release stuff and so on so like I came into this the most whole and healed I had ever been in my whole life and so like people think oh people who do drugs are um, they're just, you know, train wrecks. They're, you know, whatever, like they, they're not educated. They're the dregs of society or, you know, they're homeless, they're jobless, whatever. Okay. There's, there's some of that stigma that if you do drugs, you are somehow uneducated or uninformed or, um, that you have come from a broken home or that you, you know, you just run in the streets and stuff and, uh, excuse me, but there's a whole <laughs> lot of high powered executives and politicians and blah, 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 blah right. out there that exactly. are doing way worse or whatever. Um, so it's not about your socioeconomic background. It is not about whether you come from a broken home. It's not about whether you're a good mom or not. It's not about whether you're strung out and desperate. It's not about any of that. It is about how we're all finding less suffering in our own unique ways. I happen to have healed a tremendous amount. Um, I think it was pretty solid when I started, but there were some layers that needed it to be shed. Okay. Sure. Um, I was already confident, but my confidence grew to this um, impenetrable confidence. You know, somebody could like throw an insult at me five years ago and it might actually kind of sting. Now I laugh at it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I was already confident, but I am way more confident now. 
Um, nothing will get you more confident than stripping on stage in front of a crowd full of people and, you know, have them throw money at you, you know, or um, having a man come and pick you in a lineup and walk back and say, hey, um, I'm going to be vulnerable with you right now. And it takes courage to be vulnerable. The most courageous thing you can do is be vulnerable. And I went through my most vulnerable period of life three and a half, almost four years ago. Um, and I have gone down this path to a place where like, if somebody wanted to come work at a brothel, it's not for everybody. If you don't have high self-esteem, um, and high confidence, like solid confidence, if you can't hold boundaries and have high standards, don't come here. Okay, these girls, the girls that I work with, we're professionals. We are um, educated. We come from different backgrounds. We have uh, professionals that come here, like they're in different, like in the medical field, we have like RNs and pharmacists and like um, people who are like teachers and stuff. And that's why they have to stay anonymous or hide their face or blur their face, um, use fake names. And so on me, I'm me, I'm Tori Lisa. It's on my birth certificate and it's on my door plaque, you know? <laughs> well, folks, you heard it. We're sitting here talking with Tori Lisa. Tori, I'm going to have to pause just yeah. for a moment here. Um, and then when we return, I want to talk a little bit about your experience in the brothel, what you expected and what you actually experienced. And then we'll start to close the show. Perfect. Sounds good. Cool. cool. Okay. So, all right, Tori. So we're back. Um, thank you once again for agreeing to sit down with me. I've had a lot of fun uh, talking with you today and we've, we've talked a lot about the positive effect that legal sex work has, uh, has had on people that you've interfaced with. And we've talked about the fact that we think that if, you know, we did, we decriminalized and legalized on a national scale. I, I truly believe that we would have a better society for that. Like with, with that rather um, you mentioned, you've talked in the past about the good, the bad and the ugly. We've talked a lot about the good. Can you tell us a little bit about like what your experience has been um, and if you've had any negative experiences or if anything could be better. Okay. So, um, again, a lot of assumptions and stigma comes into play into this mm -hmm. type of work. Um, we do have people that come in that, you know, um, are misogynistic. They have, they, they don't value women and they're very, they can be very disrespectful. And like I said, I turn those people away. I don't, I don't have to do anything with them even if they paid me triple my fee, like I, I have full power. I'm an independent contractor and I speak for myself. Um, the thing is, is like, I worry about the people that aren't inside the protection of a brothel. I purposely came here because it's too unsafe. Um, the amount of abuse, um, violence directed towards sex workers, hate directed towards sex workers, um, disrespect directed towards sex workers. Like we are the lowest of the low when, when it comes to society's um, idea of our value as humans. <laughs> Yet and you're providing so, one of the best services. Sorry, I just had to quickly say that. Thank you, darling. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is like, 
there are women out there who are independent, working the streets, working, um, you know, in different types of settings, such as whether it's in their own home, God forbid, because now you're sitting duck for somebody that wants to commit a violent crime against you because they know where you live and everything. Um, hotels, casinos, like you, you, prostitution is going on everywhere. It's going in your, going on in your church parking lot. I guarantee it. Okay. There is no place that, ex that is excluded for the transaction of a prostitute. Okay. Um, there are escorts out there that provide very high end, very, um, expensive services that make it a living and they travel and I admire the hell out of every sex worker out there that's working the streets and and dealing with people without protection because what happens is let's say there is an act of violence they incriminate themselves when they report it to the police or the police basically well fuck her. She's just a prostitute. What does she matter? And yeah. don't pursue charges and so on. Okay. There, are, there is so much violence against sex workers. And when I say sex workers, not just women, I object to the fact that we don't have male brothels. Okay. We need male brothels. We need brothels with males. We, it, it, the industry is not supporting that, at least not in a widespread way. If I had my way, I would open a brothel myself. Like that may be something, but there's only so many licenses that the state, the, the, the regulations on where a brothel can be, the yep. amount of taxes and licensing. I mean, we literally fund the, the county police department here. Yeah, just and with let's our make licensing it alone. Let's make it clear that most people don't know there are no brothels anywhere in the county that contains Las Vegas. It's all outside of that. Correct. The nearest one is like an hour away because each brothel has to be in a, it cannot be in a densely populated area. So like the county I'm in is just outside the state capital where the population at the state capital, I'm literally like a mile from the county line. I'm just inside the county line, but this county qualifies because of the population amount. Yeah. And at the time it was established, let's say there's a population growth. Okay. But at the time that it was licensed back in like the seventies, these brothels existed before it became right. legal. Okay. In the 1800s. So understand that they've been here for a long time. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm part of a very famous network uh, that people might've seen the show on HBO. I can't name it out loud, but basically long story <laughs> short, there's four brothels in this County all owned by the same network, the same owners, the same previous former owner who made it famous on HBO. So like we have to be in a, an area that has less than, I think, Here, let's, I've got a, I've got, got something the, pulled got up right now. Okay. So um, for folks that are watching, if you see on the right side of my screen, uh, the green areas within Nevada is where prostitution uh, or legal sex work is permitted. And by the way, while I'm saying that, 
is like i'm not i'm not sure i've been trying to say legal sex work but i see them refer to as it prostitution like for some reason Mm -hmm. i felt like going into this conversation i felt like the word prostitution was like a dirty word but is what stigma thing is it is it yeah it's the whole stigma thing so when I, when I got cleared by the sheriff's department, I had to get fingerprinted, background checked and all that stuff. I have what's called a sheriff's card. It mm-hmm. allows me to work at one brothel. Okay. And I applied through the brothel I'm currently at. I've been here since last year. I'm here full time. I actually, um, you know, became full time because most girls come in for a couple weeks at a time and yeah. then they leave and go home to their home state and so on. Um, me, I'm here full time. I did a few tours and on my third tour, I decided I'm going to go full time here. So when I came in, though, I came in and I have my credentials and all that stuff. And they do the, the background checks and fingerprinting. And I get what's called that sheriff's card. And the sheriff's card has my legal name on it, which matches my name here. Um, but it also says legal prostitute mm. on that sheriff's card. So that is the correct term. I have a sheriff's card that says I am a legal prostitute that is allowed to work at one specific brothel. If I decide to move houses, as it's called, because there are four in our network in this county owned by the same network. um, If I go across the street, because we are in what's called the red light district, it's like a cul-de-sac of three brothels and then across the highway is the fourth one. If mm-hmm. I go across the street, I have to go back to the sheriff's department, get a whole new sheriff's card if I switch houses, even though it's all in the same company. But my card says legal prostitute. Very I was never more proud to be called a prostitute in my life. When I got that card, I was like, I got, I am government certified home. <laughs> yeah. You, well, you know, what's funny is that before I came in here, uh, Justine and I were talking about something and I just jokingly said, cause I looked at the clock and I was like, Oh, it's time to talk to Tori. So I, Justine, she's my partner. And uh, I looked at her and I said, you know what? I'm going to go in the other room. I'm going to smoke a joint. I'm going to drink a beer and I'm going to talk to a prostitute. <laughs> I know just another day at the office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just another day. I, so, so you mentioned yeah, prostitution um, has is a polluted word. It has yeah. stigma. But the thing is, is that's exactly what I am and what I do. And I'm proud of it. So for me, okay, um, somebody can call me a whore. And you know how I said five years ago that might sting and it doesn't, I'm proud. Like you can call me names, but it, it only hurts if I believe it. Yeah. And I yeah. know what I stand for and what I do. So, th- so you can, you are not disrespecting me or any other sex work by using the word prostitution. That's society trying to denigrate us or to um, create this insult from words. Like I have one of my um, fans sent me a trophy that says, you know, number one hoe. Like you can call me a slut. You can call me a whore. You can call me whatever you want. It will not affect me. It might affect another woman in some way, but sex workers are pretty confident people. So it's kind of funny if you try to, you know, fling mud at us, it's, you know, it's like, nothing sticks. (laughs) It's it's not going to stick. 
Yeah. So when you say prostitution, please know, you know, I, I speak for myself, but I also think I can speak for sex workers um, that I know and work with. We all have had this conversations like they can call us a slut, a whore, you know, whatever. Okay. Yeah. So, but so I'm licensed as a prostitute. Yes. Let, let me ask you about um, like, again, just kind of dwell. I'm trying to see like, if you think having experienced the sex industry, uh, if there's a, a better way, you know, you mentioned that there's 20, there's only 20 brothels in Nevada. It's kind of funny. Um, up until recently, there were only 21 cultivation centers in Illinois. And let me just put it this way. Let me, you know, you, see, you might see where I'm going, but let's, let's just put it this way. Like in Illinois, for example, if you would have asked me how many people are growing cannabis, I'd be like, well, it's got to be in the thousands, but legally it's only 21. Right. right. So you also said, um, you know, if I could open my own, I would, but it, it's just, you know, I've looked, I looked into like what the licensing licensing fees millions. cost. Yeah. A hundred thousand, they range from a hundred thousand dollars a year upwards. And that's just for the license. I, I, that's not even building out the facility, all the security that's required. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I didn't it's know if you from day one, it's the upfront cost, the licensing, and you also have to buy an existing license. It's not like they can create a new license. So you're basically buying into a brothel that's going out of business. I, a few weeks ago, went with some of my friends that I work with, um, and we toured a brothel that had burned down and picked through the rubble. That license and that thing, that's all gone. That That's lost history and lost, you know, licensing and so on. We also went to one um, that's halfway between Reno and, and uh, Las Vegas. It's in the middle of nowhere, just like most brothels are middle of nowhere, but it's been abandoned and, you know, vandalized and so on. And, <clears throat> um, you know, like it's a shame to see them burn down, close down, shut down, fall down, whatever, because those are precious properties. Even if you, you, you leveled the whole building, that license, it would allow you to, you know, build another one. Okay. Right. So buying out a brothel, um, one brothel outside of Vegas that used to belong to this network, and was sold off there. A cup, there were there used to be more brothels in the network that I work with, um, two of which were down in Vegas. Those two were kind of let go, especially after the former owner's death. So the long story short is they're still in operation. They are not owned by the same company that I work for or network I work for. Um, they're under new ownership. So when people buy into it, it keeps the industry alive. Yeah. I would love to be able to buy into um, a license somewhere and to be able to navigate the complexities of why there's not male prostitutes out here, because um, the way the law was written is they have like the wording of it was that we're required to have a cer cervical swab. What if you yeah. don't have a cervix, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it's, the laws are really, really wild okay i have read there. that there are i've read that there is a process now for male 
uh, sex mm-hmm. workers and that some, yes. I think one location employs like a, a, a sex worker that offers an interesting experience that, that like they, you trans, know, trans, there's um, exactly. another trans yeah, yeah. workers. Um, they're very rare. And, um, and the thing is, is like that community is being underserved. Um, the female community is being underserved. I mean, are you kidding? I would hire a sex worker if I didn't have success in the dating world, you know, like, like to have an actual safe, um, and, and, uh, consensual access. Um, I didn't find myself needing that, but more so providing that. But the thing is, is like, there needs to be more equality in who sex workers are. And there needs to be less of the illegal element that puts us at risk, puts us into violent situations, puts us um, in situations where in, in light of acts of violence or exposures for that matter, you know, there's, there are sex workers out there that are strung out, that are riding bareback, that are not following, you know, safe sex protocols, um, you know, and, and I'm not knocking any sex worker right now. I'm just saying they're yeah. we come in all spectrums. And I think that every, everybody thinks that we're strung out on drugs, that we have no skill sets to fall back on, no education, um, that we're not smart business people or that we're, you know, just yeah. loose in every way. Really it's quick. Of, is it, is it yeah. true that, that the staff there will like search your belongings to make sure you don't have drugs? Yeah. And the sheriff can walk in without a warrant and do the same. What it, are you allowed to have cannabis since no, cannabis is on, legal? Not on site. Now, are you are allowed many, to use it? There, there are some that partake, but they have to go off property. They cannot bring, you know, anything out. Like one girl thought she was smart. <laughs> Had <laughs> something a vape pen in or something. And she found her bags outside the gate 15 minutes later. Okay. We take it seriously. We could lose our license. Okay. We, we have to have a strict, no drug environment here. Why, why though, are you, oh, I'm not trying, I'm not like, I'm just trying to understand why are you allowed to have alcohol on site? We do have a bar, but we're not allowed to bring our own alcohol in. Is it because you have Um, a liquor license as well as a prostitution license? We have a liquor license which allows us 24-7 serving of hard alcohol. So the girls cannot bring in their own liquor. Um, We have to pay full price, you know, for the drinks, just like any client does. Um, yeah. If you are going to partake, cause it is legal. Cannabis is legal here. We have dispensaries here. Um, you need to do it on your own time outside the property. Wow. Um, nobody's going to shame you, but we do have to follow the rules set for brothels, which even if though cannabis up- is legal, it's not legal in a brothel. Bingo. Well, and if we back up just for a moment, it's not even about the brothel. It's really about consumption lounges. Like consumption lounges, I think just now got the green light in Nevada. So it's actually possible that maybe in the future, a brothel could get a consumption license, which would then allow you to consume on site. But like you 
I wanted to take a step back. Like I was mm -hmm. approaching it different. I was approaching it incorrectly. Like it's not even really about the brothel. Like there's not even consumption lounges in Nevada yet. So right, right. It's like let's let's slow down here. Long way to go on a <laughs> lot of things, but I'll be the first one to say um, I believe that cannabis needs to be decriminalized and legalized in every state. Um, I do believe strongly that healing modalities um, in the pharmaceuticals and, you know, um, like in the right hands, it can do a lot of good for society. In the wrong hands, it can do a lot of bad for society. There's, you know, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. But why don't we steer it towards the legal side where there is more oversight and accountability and adherence and and ethics and so on and so forth just, just like it. in the brothel industry we're very ethical here we are very professional we take our licensing so seriously that even though it's bullshit <laughs> that you know we can drink alcohol but can't you know yeah. have you know a cannabis vape on site it's hypocritical in a lot of ways i mean yeah but at the but same time like, i get it yeah. Like, I and like you say, I mean, you're, you're bringing these things, you're putting it, when, when you take something out of the shadows inherently, I think you make it safer with that mm -hmm. said, that's not saying that things can't still happen, but what's great about it coming out of the shadows is that you're less hesitant to reach out to law enforcement or to an, if you know, okay. if you need an ambulance or whatever else, like you said, uh, sex workers that are not in the legal industry, have a lot of hesitation to even report crimes against them because mm -hmm. some people are just like they just so i wanted to quickly shift uh, as we start to wrap up just i'm very curious uh um i want to display this just so you can like read along with me like uh, mm -hmm. i'm just looking at the legal prostitution in and nevada I, and i also Go. wanted to add you know people that frequent the illegal brothels are putting themselves at huge risk too um, yeah. and you know, clients that come here are buying into the peace of mind and it's, it's, you know, we strive to meet every budget, but it's not cheap. You are buying into the peace of mind that comes with, you are protected here. You know, sheriff's deputy walks in our front door. They're our friend. Nobody's going to get arrested. There's no sting going on. Nobody's going to impound your car. The girls here are not going to steal your wallet. We're not strung out on drugs. You're walking into a safe environment. Why can't we have that everywhere? Right. You know? So, but yeah, pull that up. I just wanted to point out that. Yeah, no, I appreciate you pointing that out. So the Nevada is this, the Wikipedia page says the Nevada mm -hmm. brothel system has been criticized by activists in the sex workers movement who are otherwise supporters of full decriminalization of prostitution. Um, and I just want to talk, focus on these three, cause there's other ones that it's like, mm -hmm. we could get into the weeds on, but, um, Organizations and individuals supporting the rights of prostitutes typically favor deregulation and oppose Nevada-style regulation mainly for three reasons. They say the licensing requirements create a permanent record, which can lead to discrimination later on. I don't even know if that's true or what that means. I want you to be able to weigh in on that in a moment. But the next point, the large power difference between brothel owner and prostitution, uh, sorry, and prostitute gives prostitutes very little influence over their working conditions, which a lot of the things you've said kind of conflicts with that. So maybe mm -hmm. we've already addressed that point, but again, I'll let you expound on that in a moment. 
Um, the third one, which this is the, the biggest one that I've ever thought about. Like when somebody said this to me in the past, I was like, holy shit, I've never really thought about it this way. So you mentioned that prostitutes undergo legal and health background checks, but their customers do not. And so the regulations, some people say, are thus designed to protect the customers, but not you, the worker. So I'm going to give you devil that hit here. I actually had someone within the court system when I was going through that whole court thing that I told you about, um, tell me that I couldn't work here. And even though the state of Colorado had no problem with me working here, because I made it no secret. This mm -hmm. is where I work. This, this is how I make a living. The state of Nevada was having an issue with it because there was some documentation that was, you know, being passed between the states. And I had somebody tell me, you can't work there. And I said, why? It's a legal job, just like anything else. And this woman who we later, I were able to identify that she's one of those activists was trying to basically blow smoke up my ass and intimidate me and just try to pull a power punch on me. And I called her out on, I said, do you have something in writing that says that? Well, I'll have, I'll, I'll have so-and-so get that for you, blah, blah, blah. Well, she knew I was onto her at that point, but she, I said, why? It is a legal job, just like anywhere else. If anything, I've got a sheriff's card. I mean, I have, you know, met the criteria to legally work here. So why are you discriminating against me working here? And she says, it's because it's known that she, these are her words. She says, it's known that you will be constantly in the presence of alcoholics, drug abusers, and criminals. And I was like, no, we're not. If anything, the grocery store worker is exposed to all those same people. That nurse at the, at the emergency room is exposed, if not more, to those kinds of people. So if you're going to say that I am exposed on a continuous basis to the dregs of society by your standards, and I can't work here, then we need to talk about all the convenience store worker, the grocery store clerk, the, you know, whatever, whatever. Now, these people move through society. And these people, the, you know, the drug dealers, the drug users, the alcoholics, the whatevers, they're pumping gas, they are buying groceries, they are seeking health care, they are moving through society without question. So I don't think that we need to background check everybody that comes in. Yes, we check IDs, we make sure that they're, you know, they're legal. But they're not going to be walking in with a gun. Yeah. And if they have drugs on them and we can identify that, we just ask them to leave. Yeah, but are you no. worried about the fact that like, you know, some of the people that you might be having parties with could, am I correct in thinking you can still pass a sexual, sexually transmitted disease with a condom on? It, okay, so it would be difficult. Not yeah. impossible, but difficult. Okay. But does that work? Um, does that worry you that, that you guys don't even test? I'm just talking about like your working conditions. Do you think that that would be a good improvement if you so tested the, the people? I trust my abilities. We, we do, it's called a dick check. Yeah. We do a full Tell us about the dick inspection. Check. <laughs> okay. Um, and if it's a female client, you know, similar genitalia, but a hoo-ha check. Visual. Huh? <laughs> the 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 guy is a dick check the girl is a hoo-ha check 
Yes. So <laughs> I, I'm the one that, that clears them. If there is anything of question, and I have refused people who might've had a shaving bump. Mm. Okay. If there's anything that looks out of the ordinary, they don't get cleared. They don't party with me. Okay. okay. Um, it would be illogical in a lot of ways to require them to be tested because testing takes a while, blah, 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 blah. So it's more of a judgment call and an educational thing. Like, you know, we know what to look for. And if there's anything suspicious at all under any circumstances, it's a hard no. If there is any rash, if there's any bump, like anything, no open skin, no cuts, nothing. Okay. So the dudes that freshly shave and cut themselves could very well be turned away, even though they don't have anything wrong. Can someone get exposed to, I mean, you know, the herpes, um, you know, like cold sores, like 80% of the population have it. Okay. If I'm seeing a dude with, with a cold sore on his lip, um, those lips are coming nowhere near me, you know? So, you know what I'm saying? Like, I know what I'm doing here and we're, you know, we're much like healthcare workers in the sense that like, we have a lot of knowledge about yeah. this. At the same time, we're also very, very careful about, you know, safe sex and beyond the condom itself. So there are ways to have intimacy. And, and here's the other thing. It's not always about the sex. I have clients that come in just to talk yeah, and just to maybe cuddle or to slow dance and be silly or, you know, like on Christmas Eve last year, a client partied in our fantasy suite, which is, you know, our highest upgrade champagne party. And we jumped on the bed and, you know, drank champagne and listened to music and just, you know, like it was, it's less about the sex, but the actual sex acts themselves. It is up to me to clear them. I am, I use a lot of discernment and scrutiny. Um, if I think that there's any way, shape or form that I might be putting myself at risk, then it's a no. Um, or I may redirect to something that's not quite as much contact, okay? Guys come in and say, hey, can you go bed, Brett? Absolutely not. And I need you to leave my room because now I can't trust you to, you know, to, to maybe try stealthing me or whatever, you know, like, People will, when people tell you who they are, believe them. Okay. So I turn away a lot of money in their pockets, in those pockets, because my safety is of utmost importance. Um, I do have support of management. Not every brothel runs the same way. I do know other brothel workers um, in other houses across the state. And they, they may, even though they're independent contractors, management may say, why'd you turn away that guy? He had $500 or whatever. And, is and they it have true to justify their decision. Whereas me, nobody's asking me to justify any decision I make here because I act independently. I am an independent contractor. Yeah. Um, is it true that, that answer your question? I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have you heard about at other locations? Uh, is I saw you specifically answer this question in your AMA. I, you said your location doesn't prevent you from traveling. In fact, they'll provide you with a chauffeur. Um, Correct. But I've heard other locations restrict people from like leaving past five p.m. or whatever. 
So there are some brothels that are lockdown brothels. Once you go in those gates, you stay in those gates and you complete your tour. You do not leave it to go out to the grocery store. You do not leave it to, to do anything because the risk here is someone, let's say I wasn't one of them, but I do know that there are independent sex workers who worked in their location in other states where it's illegal. They were escorts. And they have experience as sex workers, but not as a legal prostitute in a brothel. Um, I'm one of the trainers here. So, you know, I'm screening these girls when they come in. Um, in fact, I'm assigned a new girl that just came in today. I'm going to start training her tomorrow. So I do a lot of the training here. So I'm fielding um, these girls coming in, what their background and experiences. And many, many of them have gotten tired of the risks and liabilities with being independent sex workers in illegal states um, and want to go legal. And so they come in and they tell me their stories. But then I also talk to other brothel workers at other brothels who have you know, been hired at another brothel. And the thing is, is some brothels rightfully so are concerned that some of the girls will run their own side hustle on the outside of those gates and then bring back risks and so on exposures to their clients that they may not have used a condom with i won't party behind somebody who you know i'm that might be acting a little sketch because they are they keep making runs to the the casino every night after their shift um yeah they're they're looking a little suspicious so i'm not gonna party with a client that might have party with them because sometimes clients come in the party with one girl They'll have a breather and then they'll book with another girl. I won't party behind, as, as I call it, um, behind some of some of the people because I just I I take my own sexual health very, very seriously. Yeah. Um, there are only a select few people that I will do like a two-girl party with, like threesomes and so on. Um, my particular location allows us to come and go. Okay. Um, we get a lot of freedoms here, whereas other brothels, you're on lockdown. Some brothels, their working conditions aren't very good. They, the girls have to do a lineup 24 seven and just hope to catch sleep in between bells. Yeah, and I've they, heard. And they and get fined yeah. if they miss a lineup because they slept through it or something. You know, here we have actual shifts. So my working conditions here, oh my God, my quality of life is amazing. I have full-time housekeeping. I have a full-time cook make, you know, she'll make me made to order breakfast. I have a full-time driver 24 seven to take me wherever I want to go. Do you um, have healthcare? I no, I do not have healthcare. We do have an onsite clinic for the purpose of doing our testing and a doctor that state approved that comes on site. But in order for me, you know, but I do, I need to go to the eye doctor. I need to go to the dentist. I need to go to the doctor, whatever. I'm here full time. So I saw a... I'm fortunate that I get to come and go, but they also can search my room. They can search what the bags of stuff I'm bringing in. And I'm okay with that. I would yeah. rather them know that I'm not doing something illegal outside of the brothel, they trust me here because I don't have a side hustle, but some girls will try to, to juggle a side hustle with brothel work and they do not last long here. Yeah. They, so, they tell on themselves very quickly and none of the girls are going to party behind a girl like that. And I'm I, not saying they're dirty. I'm not saying they're unethical. I'm not saying that 
that's what all of the independent ones do outside of brothel walls, but the risk is there. Therefore, we are not going to take on that risk because we can lose our license. We can have exposure to somebody who just, you know, uh, partied with a guy with no condom, whatever here. I know condoms are being used. Yeah. So forgive me. I know we're way over our time, but I just got into some, no, no, no. I'm sorry. If you're fine, I'm, I'm fine. Okay. All but, right. Uh, now I'm good. I could, I, 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 I just feel like we just got into a things, really but... good. So, um, uh, I was under the impression that you did have healthcare. Like when I was in high mm-hmm. school, uh, here, I'll actually kind of reveal, um, a little bit about myself. One of my classmates, uh, former classmates worked in network with you. I won't say where, um, but they were in a news coverage. Um, and they were talking about the fact that they could get Obamacare at the time. And of course it was, oh, okay. prostitutes can get Ob- uh, can get a uh, healthcare. And it was like painted really negatively, but, but a, a lot of your, well, maybe that was for the uninsured, underinsured and so on as well. And here's the oh. thing. Um, I do have healthcare through other sources. Um, however, I am a 1099 contractor. I am not gotcha. an employee here. Um, I pay my own taxes. I get my, you know, I pay my own social security. Like I am someone who, you know, could be like a consultant on the outside. You know, they get a 1099, they do contract work. I am on contract. So yeah. I am responsible for my healthcare. I am responsible for, um, you know, my taxes and social security and Medicare and all that stuff. Um, I have to pay all of that. Yeah. So, is it, is it true that the house will take like 50% of your earnings? Um, each house is different, but industry wide, that's a pretty common number. Gotcha. So you got to come up with a number that's going to be worthwhile for your establishment, but also yourself. Correct. But at the same time, the house is providing a lot of safety, security, amenities, and so on. So basically, it would be like a hairdresser paying for their space at a salon. Okay. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, the house gets their cut. I get my cut because they are providing the not only the space and, and you know it's, this is a resort style facility this is one of the higher end ones that i work at not every brothel is the same as far as what their amenities are or you know um, benefits are we have 24 7 courtesy chauffeurs that will come and pick you up at the airport at your hotel whatever like we we provide a more luxurious um, experience for our clients than maybe some other brothels do. Um, but I am basically just, you know, quick equivalent, a hairstylist, a hairdresser at a salon who buys the space for the chair. Um, you know, they're being, they're paying the rent. So I pay room and board and I get, you know, um, I have maintenance crew. Like I literally, I had a leak in my shower the other day um, maintenance man comes in and fixes it. I don't have to worry about it. I just put in a work order. Um, you know, so like I'm well taken care of here. So I have no problem with the house getting their cut because they are taking good care of me. Yeah. Is it, is it really tough to, to move between locations that one of the parallels I see between what you mentioned, uh, how that works and legal, the legal sex industry, but 
uh, the way it works in the Illinois cannabis industry is that you're licensed to work at one location and mm -hmm. you have to get badged with the Illinois state police to work at that location. Yep. And you can't just say, fuck this place. I'm going to this place. Like you have to go through that whole registration again. And in yep. some, in some cases it actually keeps workers from, from moving to a new location. Um, do you find that that regulation inhibits it all? Or do you think it makes sense? I really think that there's such a high demand for, um, okay. So when you've got 40,000 people all vying for the same position, okay. Um, you have to have a really good reputation to be picked up by another house. In other words, you have to be profitable. You, you have to demonstrate that you're profitable and that you have skill sets that meet the needs of their clients. So let's say I do move to an entire, you know, completely out of this network and into an entirely different brothel, let's say out in Vegas. Yes. Number one, I'd have to convince them that it's worth having me hired amongst all the other candidates. Now it does give me a bit of a leg up because I can prove my numbers. I can, I can prove my success rate. I can prove that, you know, I, I have, um, you know, a client following and, and, you know, and so on. Um, I can prove the skill sets and so on. The uniqueness of me will get me hired above, say, somebody else that's never worked in a brothel. It does give me more of um, an advantage to be hired, but it doesn't guarantee I'll be hired. And then number two, or when I say hired, not as an employee, but, you know, contracted, getting a contract. And then, yes, I have to go and get my sheriff's card in that particular county. I basically would be starting the whole process all over again. I pay for my own um, testing every week, you know, so like as an independent contractor, in addition to the taxes and so on, I provide all the condoms, all the supplies. I pay for my own testing. Like there's a lot of overhead as a legal prostitute that is absorbed into my business model structure and rate structure. So like I provide a large menu of options because I have a lot of experience and a lot of different things that are highly specialized. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm more easily hired than somebody who is maybe 20 years old and has never had a threesome and doesn't know what BDSM is. And you know what I'm saying? Like I have a lot of experience. So I actually, I don't worry about whether I would get hired elsewhere but at the same time, very little opportunities open up because the sex workers that do come into this industry generally stay in it and don't bounce around a whole lot. Yeah. And they well, try to go for, you know, the, the houses like the one I'm at that has not only name recognition, but it also has um, the quality of life that I'm given. Not every brothel has a driver, let alone you know, housekeeping or a chef or maintenance. And, you know, so I work at a more upscale location and I'm treated well here too. So you're going to pay yeah. more for me here as opposed to if I went to a brothel that didn't have all those amenities and securities and, and quality of life stuff built in, um, my rate structure would probably go down to be competitive because I'm not buying into the whole quality of life of the amenities that they provide because they're not providing them, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it's pretty competitive here. 
and I'm very fortunate and privileged to do what I do. So I don't take it for granted either. Um, if gotcha. I do ever move to another house, I will look at the overall big picture. What is my quality of life going to be? What type of clientele is going to be there? Some brothels are on the highway and they just get another but truckers passing through, you know, like here mm -hmm. I have a local client base. I have a very dedicated client base. I already have a following where people who are already familiar with me and may have never met me are planning a trip to come out here just so they can spend time with me, things like that. I have a client that flew in a couple months ago. He partied with me for three days straight. He loved it so much. He's rebooking for seven days straight in September, you know? So like I have a good hey, client attention rate. I thought you said you don't share personal information. Why are you telling people about our plans? In September. I'm joking. I'm darling, I'm joking. don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> uh, so, hey, uh, I want to close uh, yeah. with this topic uh, that we kind of already touched on, but I just want to circle back around to it. Do you think that it could be done a better way? I know beggars can't be choosers. You know, Nevada is the first to do it and the only to do it. But it's so hard, from what I understand, to open up a brothel. Um, should it should it be easier? Why are there only 20? Like, do you do you agree that that's like... It, that that's an issue. Again, I know beggars can't be choosers, but like, you know, it's already been proven. So why aren't we replicating it? Yeah. And yes, there are some things that could be better. We need to be serving more clientele with, you know, prostitutes or are basically when you say the word prostitute, somebody imagines a woman, a sultry woman, right? Well, prostitutes are actually every walk of life and we need to have more diversity in representing um, all humans in every gender identity. Um, I believe that we need to also still have the oversight and accountability, but let's be real here, okay? If we're in a legal state for cannabis, like you said, why can't we get a license so that it can be smoked on site? Why, you know, why is it so hard? Why do we have to risk an alcohol license, a liquor license, um, if somebody walks in with, with a little, you know, two ounce bottle of Jack in their pocket? You know, yeah. like it's, it's, it's too regulated in some ways. But I also support and endorse the high regulations that we have for safe sex, for the condom use and all that stuff. 100% endorse that. Um, I think that we will see vast improvements in society when we get our heads out of our asses and quit thinking about it being a moral and ethical thing when we are operating morally and ethically. We're just getting, you know, the Bible thumpers and the activists that are like, oh, sex is bad and dirty and shameful. And, oh, you're a horrible human when really we are the most compassionate, most professional, most dedicated uh, humans that you could put in charge of caring for other humans and caring for them in ways that matter. And I just think that... Um, we all need it. We all need 
comfort. We all need healing. We all need, our society would be so much better off if we had those outlets to, to have a more joyful life and a meaningful life. And there's too much suffering going on out there for us to not look at it. Well said. Well, I want to thank you for your service to society. I want to thank you for your time. Um, I'd love to sit down with you again uh, in the future. Uh, I feel like there's so much more we could talk about, but I don't want to take too much more of your time. Uh, I'm also going to go out and uh, probably enjoy a good snack, late night snack with my partner. So yes, um, munchy time. <laughs> yeah, you know it. You know hey, it. So I have. You've got to try the toffee Oreos. Do have you had toffee Oreos yet? No. That sounds, that sounds delicious. You, you're okay. setting us up well, for I just, something to I try I just planted tonight. a seed for you, but listen, I want to thank all the viewers. Number one, thank you for listening. Thank you for having an open mind and an open heart about a topic that is typically shied away from or, you know, hush, hush. I do feel privileged that I can speak openly um, about what I do and why I do it and that I get to live a life that is transparent, transparent and authentic. So the fact that you stopped and listened to this is, is, is quite an honor for me. So thank you. And Cole, thank you for having me on here. I know that we're all kind, we're all on the same team. Um, not everybody may understand it, but the more that we talk about it, I think the more acceptance we can get. So I'm happy to talk with you anytime. And if people have questions, feel free to reach out, follow my socials. Um, I'm like I said, I'm very open. Um, you know, as long as you're respectful. Otherwise, like a couple of clicks and you're gone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So be nice, folks. Uh, we'll have uh, Tori's contact information in the show notes. If you like what you saw, wink, wink. Uh, she's got an OnlyFans and uh, FetLife. So there's your opportunity to actually procure some of her legal very sex generous services. generous with my so. free content. So there is that too. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then, you know, if again, if you go to Nevada, um, if you connect with Tori online, uh, you can maybe party with her. So take that opportunity. If that's something that, that interests you, uh, Tori, once again, I give free tours to whoever shows up on site, whatever happens after that. <laughs> cool. What well, happens in the brothel stays in the brothel. <laughs> hell yeah. Hell yeah. That's, <laughs> that's what you. we like to hear. Yeah. Much thank love you. to everyone out there. All right. Chillinoy. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care. All right.